Well, good morning, everybody. All right, who can't I see over here? Yeah. Those of you behind the pole over there, you'll just, uh, I don't know, you may have the best view, actually. I don't know. All right, so we're in Isaiah, and we're going to try to go through chapters 36 and 37 today. And um, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll just jump on in, right? We'll just jump on in. So, 30 years ago, much of America and then later much of the world was faced with a, uh, with a worrisome scenario. There was an element of fear, element of worry, and helplessness, but a solution was proposed. Uh, a savior of sorts was promoted as an answer to a problem that otherwise might have had no solution. The scenario went something like this. If there's something strange in your neighborhood, who are you going to call? Ghostbusters. If there's something weird and it don't look good, who are you going to call? Ghostbusters. In today's text, we see a situation where there is definitely something going on in Jerusalem's neighborhood. Something weird and it don't look good. And the question clearly becomes, who are you going to call? So we have these chapters, 36, 37, 38, 39. If you read them, definitely a different tone. We've been going through words of prophecy, which kind of has that poetic sort of a feel to it, right? And sometimes it's actually kind of hard to read through, you know? And then you get to chapter 36, and it's, it's more like a news story. Uh, it's, it's easier to read, uh, and, and it just kind of flows. So what are these chapters doing here? And commentators have kind of struggled with this notion for a while, and... Um, it becomes kind of obvious, uh, or eventually it became obvious to me uh, once it was pointed out that they serve a purpose. So in the last 10, 12, 15 chapters, we've looked at this uh, general theme of uh, judgment, that there is judgment coming. Um, it is because of uh, some of the sins of both Judah and Israel, and judgment's coming, but that eventually <clears throat> God is going to mete out his own brand of justice, and all is going to be right one day. And chapter 35 was all about that one day, the millennium, when everything really is going to be great. But if we pull back a little bit more and look at all of Isaiah that we've looked at so far, Another big theme comes, and it's not just judgment, but it is trust. And in essence, who are you going to call? And the question is, are you going to trust in the nations and the politics and all the maneuverings of all the kings and so forth? Or are you going to trust in God? 
Who are you going to trust? In the earlier chapters, uh, we have King Ahaz, and he kind of gave the wrong answer of who you're going to trust. We saw chapters 13 through 35 was all about woe to this and that and judgment. And here we have a transition with Hezekiah, and it we'll talk a little bit next week that chronologically these chapters are are probably actually in reverse chronological order but the prophet does it for a reason and the reason is in these chapters we'll see Hezekiah confronted with a crisis and it's all about the Assyrians and then there's a pivot Chapters 38 and 39 is all about transitioning from all that's happened with the Assyrians to what's going to happen with the Babylonians. All right? So these chapters, although they're historical, they make a good point. So let's jump on in. We're going to walk through, um, we're going to walk through uh, these chapters and see what God has for us. Now it came about in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah with a large army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the fuller's field. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. So we have Sennacherib, the king, has sent a contingent from where he's waging war uh, over near the coast. He sent this contingent with his representatives eastward toward Jerusalem. They've laid up some preparations to siege uh, this city. Um, And we have this meeting between Sennacherib's representatives and we just met in verse 3, Hezekiah's representatives. Then Rabshakeh, and apparently Rabshakeh is not um, a proper name. Apparently it's, the na- it's a title. So you, we could say, then the commander said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What is this confidence that you have? Who are you going to trust? And now we have this commander meeting up with the contingent from Hezekiah, and he's basically going to lay out a taunt, a deal, um, a prophecy, a threat, all the different things that he can manage in terms of, you might say, primitive psychological warfare to try to get Hezekiah to surrender. So with that in mind, I'm going to switch over. You can follow along, but I'm going to switch over to the paraphrase, the message, because I think it flows better. And if you can almost just picture this commander wandering around in front of the city within earshot of the walls that would surround Jerusalem, taunting threatening 
giving a message to this contingent. Then Rabshakeh said to them, Tell Hezekiah that the great king, the king of Assyria, says this, What kind of backing do you think you have against me? You're bluffing, and I'm calling your bluff. Your words are no match for my weapons. What kind of backup do you have now that you've rebelled against me? Egypt? Don't make me laugh. Egypt is a rubber crutch. Lean on Egypt and you'll end up flat on your face. That's all Pharaoh the king of Egypt is to anyone who leans on him. And if you try to tell me, we're leaning on God. Isn't it a bit late? Hasn't Hezekiah just gotten rid of all the places of worship telling you you've got to worship at this altar? Be reasonable. Face the facts. My master, the king of Assyria, will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. You can't do it. You can't do it, can you? So how do you think? Depending on flimsy Egypt's chariots and riders, you can stand up against even the lowest-ranking captain in my master's army? And besides, do you think I came all this way to destroy this land without first getting God's blessing? It was your God who told me, make war on this land, destroy it. Eliakim, Shebna, and Joad answered, talk to us in Aramaic. We understand Aramaic. But don't talk to us in Hebrew within earshot of all these people. But he replied, do you think my master has sent me to give this message to your master and you, but not to all the people clustered around here? They're the ones who are going to end up eating their own excrement and drinking their own urine. Then he stood up and called loudly in Hebrew, listen to the message of the great king, the king of Assyria. Don't listen to Hezekiah's lies. He can't save you. Don't pay attention to Hezekiah's pious sermons telling you to lean on God, telling you God will save us, depend on it. God won't let this city fall to the king of Assyria. Listen to the king of Assyria's offer. Make peace with me. Come and join me. Everyone will end up with a good life. Plenty of land and water, and eventually something far better. I'll turn you loose in wide open spaces with more than enough fertile and productive land for everyone. Don't let Hezekiah mislead you with his lives. God will save us. Has this ever happened? Has any God in history ever gotten the best of the king of Assyria? Look around you. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Did those gods do anything for Samaria? Name me one God that has ever saved its country from me. So what makes you think that God could save Jerusalem for me? And the three men were silent. They said nothing, for the king had already commanded, don't answer him. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the court historian, tearing their clothes in defeat and despair, went back and reported what the Rebshekah had said to Hezekiah. So, it's a mouthful, taunting, mocking these people. A couple things there. Um, it's interesting. You hear 
this pagan has kind of done his homework. He kind of knows how to throw up the things in their face saying God is going to save you or God can't save you. He doesn't get it exactly right because, you know, Hezekiah had actually torn down the false places of worship where they were worshiping idols in the past. Uh, He kind of thinks, he kind of gets that wrong a little bit thinking that that's going to somehow offend God, but of course God, the true God, likes it. But the thrust of it was probably pretty effective. Probably pretty effective because it wasn't just his words. Those people on the wall that were looking down and hearing everything that was going on, they're also looking over the shoulder of this guy to literally thousands of people camped around. It really wasn't looking good. So much so, chapter 37, verse 1, it says, And when King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and he entered the house of the Lord. Then he sent this contingent. He sent them to Isaiah, and in verse 3, they report to Isaiah. Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, rebuke, and rejection, for children have come to birth, and there is no strength to deliver. Perhaps the Lord your God will hear the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, offer a prayer for the remnant that is left. So, the king of Assyria had come down, had already pretty much conquered the northern kingdoms, had come down from the north, and had started to go down the coast capturing territory and there was a contingent coming up the coast from Egypt they would eventually fight a lot of cities were fallen there was a there was a fortress city this Lakesh there was a fortress city that was holding its own and there was Jerusalem holding its own but between the two there wasn't a whole lot there Hezekiah was worried. So Isaiah says in in verse 6, Thus shall you say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words you've heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. The king of Assyria, this was referring to Sennacherib. We find out later that this prophecy did come to pass. He was killed by the sword in his temple by one of his sons, or maybe two of his sons. Anyway, verse 8. Then Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. So the commander there delivers his message. And while Hezekiah is thinking about it, he goes back to join up with Sennacherib, who's fighting on the coast, to kind of hook up with him. Uh, When he went back, he wasn't where he had left him. He had already made his way further south. And that's what this is referring to. (laughs) 
Let's go down to um, well, let me summarize it. When the commander hooks up with Sennacherib, he gives him a fresh word saying, go back to Hezekiah and basically saying, once I take care of all these folks to the south, then I'm coming after you. So even though the army's pulled back, don't get your hopes up. You're next. That's the, the concept there. So in verse 14, Hezekiah took the letter that says this updated threat and read it, and he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord, and he prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, who art enthroned above the cherubim, thou art the God, thou alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. Thou hast made the heaven and the earth. Incline thy ear, O Lord, and hear. And he beseeches God, save us. He is asking. He goes up to the temple. This is serious. This, he's the king, but he is humbling himself. He is going to the temple. He is laying his request and saying, God, save us. Verse 18, Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated all the countries and their lands. They've cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods but the work of men's hands. Verse 20, Deliver us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou alone, Lord, art God. God answers a prayer through Isaiah. And in verse 21, Isaiah says to Hezekiah, Because you've prayed to me about Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, this is the word of the Lord. I'm sorry, this is the word that the Lord has spoken against him. And then we have Isaiah prophesying against Sennacherib. You could go down to, I guess, verse 28. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. Because of your raging against me and because of your arrogance has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips and I will turn you back by the way which you came. This is significant because apparently this is what the Assyrians did to their captives. They put a hook in their nose and led them wherever they wanted to go. So God's saying, I'm going to put a hook in your nose and lead you right back where you came. And then to Hezekiah, he says in verse 30, Then this will be the sign for you. You shall eat this year what grows of itself, and the second year what springs from the same. And in the third year, sow, reap, plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. And their surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant, and out of Mount Zion survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Therefore, concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come to this city or shoot an arrow there, neither shall he come before it with a shield, nor throw up a mound against it. By the way he came, the same he shall return. Verse 35, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. So, 
God is beseeched for salvation. And through Isaiah, he answers Hezekiah and says, I'm going to take care of this. You've prayed to me. You've asked for deliverance. And I'm coming through for you. And even though times are tough, remember this was a besieged city, right? They weren't necessarily free to do tons of planting. All that was disrupted. He says, you know, the first couple years, it's going to be rough. But then there's going to be a harvest. There's going to be a harvest. In verse 36, we hear the rest of the story. It says, Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men arose early in the morning, all of these were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home, lived in Nineveh. And it says in verse 38, And it came about as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that these two guys, his sons, killed him with the sword. They escaped into Ararat, and this other son became king. So, the cool thing about Scripture is that when you try to look into it, even as far as this is, you're never that far from Easter. You're never that far from Easter. This passage in Isaiah 38, verse 30, it says, This will be a sign for you. You'll eat this year what grows of itself, and the second year what springs from the same, and the third year so reap, plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. This became inspiration for a psalm. So turn to the book of Psalms. Look at Psalm 126. And as I studied this, I found an answer to something that has plagued me since I was a boy. The answer is in verse 6 if you want to skip ahead. It says, when the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. In other words, we were just, all we had was dreams. All we had. It says, then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. In this second year, that's when they had the plant. So they, he had the seeds, that, the grain, that they would have preferred to eat. But instead, he had to, in faith, plant some of that. Because if you don't plant some of your seed, you don't have any harvest the next year. So he said, those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes 
to and fro, weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. So the mystery, of course, was when the hymn says, we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves, I never knew what those were or why we should be happy about bringing them anywhere. Listen to this old hymn. I won't sing it. Mama probably could. <laughs> sowing in the morning, sowing seeds of kindness, sowing in the noontime, not noontide and the dewy eve, waiting for the harvest and the time of reaping, we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Further down, it says, going forth with weeping, sowing for the master. Though the loss sustained, our spirit often grieves. When our weeping's over, he will bid us welcome. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. The psalmist was reflecting on those years. Where the first couple years, they were getting by but really all they had was a promise and a prophecy to look forward to. The composer, the hymn, Bringing the Sheaves, reflects more our day when we have a promise. We have a prophecy that one day we will all be rejoicing as well. But right now, it's not all rejoicing. Even on Easter, this most glorious day, when we celebrate what has happened, we're human. It's over 2,000 years ago. We can lapse into some despair. But we can, if we hang on to that promise, then we can look forward to that day when we are figuratively, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the bounty of what God has promised. I want to look at one more parallel, and that is going back to this siege. When the commander is there strutting to and fro, literally has the city by the throat, and is mocking. And the words, he's very clear, weren't just for his immediate audience, but were very much for all the spectators who were around. And I couldn't help but think, I couldn't help but think that as Jesus was being taunted, and being mocked. That the message wasn't just for Jesus, but to his followers, those disciples who were close enough to hang around, and then the extended followers who were just among the spectators. The mocking. The jeers. I'm sure that the promise that they had been given, which they didn't really even understand, this promise that in three days, not three years, but in three days, 
I'm going to rise. It wasn't that explicit, really. They didn't really get it. So, but the mocking was there. So, surely those days between Friday and Sunday were probably even darker than they were for those in Jerusalem for those three years while they were waiting for the victory. But don't you know it made that it made that Sunday morning all the better because all the mocking, all the other stuff, and ultimately wasn't it about who is greater? <clears throat> ultimately, isn't it about who's got the biggest God? You know, Caesar thought he had it going on, and even his governors thought they had it going on. You know, the big thing was, he says he's the king. No matter where you are in history, it seems that the answer is, who's your God? Who are you going to trust? Who's got the biggest God? Who's got the most effective God? Who's got the most powerful God? Who's got the God with a good resume? When things aren't good, who are we going to call? Not some false God, but the true God. The God that is the power of the resurrection. We get a glimpse, just a glimpse, of God as he comes through for Hezekiah. To them, certainly more than a glimpse. 185,000 laid low by, I think it says, an angel. One angel. But the real power of the resurrection, it's there for us. So, we need to continue to remember that. When we're in this time of promise, yes, we're looking back to the cross, but we're looking forward to even better days. And we need to remember it, who we're going to put our trust in. And it's always going to be in the power of God. All right. I'll pause there. Any comments, questions? Aren't we in the process of reliving all of this? Not in our country, praise God, but look what's going on in Europe with the ISIS and their God. So if, if you didn't hear, there is still a battle. Our God versus another God. Yeah? And hasn't it really always been like that? It's no irony that it's the exact same location. Right? Where Syria and all that is, it's because it used to be us, Syria. Right? It's the same location. 
All right. No, Ghostbusters is not the new Easter hymn. Um, nor really is bringing in the sheaves, but uh, uh, you never know what's going what's gonna to pull together when you start reading. Uh, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are and have always been and will continue to be the God of victory. We thank you for the ultimate victory of, over death and the grave, exemplified with Jesus, your Son, our Savior. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.